So this house was built in Poland to kind of illustrate the craziness and the upside down and the absurdity of the world. And so we put all these paintings, if, if you saw that, um, if you could read that quickly, what they were saying. We put all these paintings uh, in the house and all these maps about all the terrorism and affliction that the world has undergone over the last uh, century or so. Uh, but he said something very interesting. Uh, the, the workers who built this house had to take breaks so regularly. It took 114 days because the, the builders got so disoriented and they got sick and they got dizzy. Uh, and then that one woman who was walking through said, yeah, uh, I feel so dizzy. I feel sick. I just want to get out of here because I hate being in this upside down environment. Keep that in mind as we go forth this morning. We'll come back to that house in just a little while. This morning we're continuing our series through some of Jesus' last words, affectionately known by many as the Great Commission. This is Jesus' great calling upon his followers. If you have your scriptures, I'd encourage you to take them out. Join me in Matthew 28. We are going to be going through uh, the second stanza of these five stanzas that are offered to us at the end of Matthew 28. Here's the thing. If you're here exploring the Christian faith, if you're you're here because um, you are interested and you are exploring simply what Jesus is about, we are excited that you are here and we are excited that you have come to Restoration Church and we invite you again next week and the following weeks to continue to learn about that journey. But as a disclaimer, I, I do really want you to know that this series is really geared towards those who are committed to Christ. It's, it's about being on mission and following him more faithfully and, and proclaiming his name to the masses in the world. And so the series is really driven towards those who are committed to Christ. And so you, you may feel pushed into something that you're not prepared to invest in this morning if you are not a, a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's okay. If you're here on a journey, that's totally fine. We are excited that you are here. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to have a, a personal relationship with Jesus if you're not at that point. And we have a ton of resources available to you to help you on that journey and to help you figure out exactly what you're wrestling with. But this series, of which there are three more weeks, is really drawn towards those who are committed to Christ. And so if you were with us last week, these two verses, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we're breaking them up into five different stanzas, and we're walking through each stanza week by week. And so today we are on to that second stanza. I would still encourage you guys to take those green cards that you received last week if you were here. Uh, put them on your dashboard, put them on your refrigerator, uh, put them in a place where you're going to see them and to memorize these two verses in Scripture to be reminded about what your calling is as a Christ follower. The text says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely... I will always be with you to the very end of the age. This morning, we're going to focus on the second stanza. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Father, we do ask for your wisdom this morning. We do ask that you would be present in this place. Father, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, our minds, Father, to receive your words this morning, that we might be compelled to go and to preach your word among the nations. We might be compelled, Father, to go to make disciples and to know who you are, Father, and your great love, and that might compel us to do something significant. We do pray these things in your name. Amen. So when I was in junior high, uh, my English teacher, her name was uh, Miss Elizabeth, she would oftentimes read us a little book that she had written. It was called Therefore What? Um, <laughs> she never got this book published, in part because it was only three pages long. She, she made it on printer paper. It only had three words. The entire book was comprised of three words. Uh, it basically was essentially this, therefore what? 
She stapled it together herself. She read it almost every single day in English class. The reason she read it so often was because we thought it was funny, not because we didn't understand what the book was about, not that because we didn't get the point, but she thought it was funny. We all thought it was funny. Seventh graders thought it was funny. Therefore what? By Miss Elizabeth. Lessons by Miss Elizabeth. Therefore what? And so the book reads like this. Therefore what? By Miss Elizabeth. Therefore Therefore, what? Yeah, we thought it was funny. Not you guys have done okay. There's a there's a reason there's a reason she never got it published. Yeah, I think um, because it's kind of simple and it's kind of stupid. But we all understood the point. That therefore, this word therefore requires context. It actually draws you back into the text. Therefore, is this is this uh, incredible word that actually draws you back into the text. So if you're going to start a book with the word therefore, well, therefore what? Well, what are you talking about? Therefore what? It draws you backwards. And that was the whole point of why she stood and read this book to us every single day before class. Therefore what? It suggests that there is a contest. It suggests that there is something before this stated that you need to understand in order to understand everything that comes after this. And so if you want to understand, go and make disciples of all nations. If you want to understand baptizing and teaching them to obey and everything else that comes after this therefore, then you need to understand what comes before the therefore. And you were with us last week. If you were with us last week, you would know that the before therefore is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, it relies on this context. It relies on this authority having been given over to Jesus. So we must understand this if we were going to understand the reason for which we go and make disciples. In our case, this authority that once belonged to Satan, his mastery and his rule, The fear and the manipulation, this has been put to death and it has been replaced with the proper authority of Jesus Christ to rule with his love. And so when Satan tries to accuse you of guilt, for instance, when Satan tries to accuse you of guilt and shame and lack of self-worth, you can tell him in the name of Jesus to shut his mouth. Because your worth is not conditioned upon his lies and what the world thinks of you and what people tell you. You can tell him to shut his mouth in the name of Jesus because proper authority has been replaced. When he tries to tell you that you should be ashamed because of your past and the sins you've committed and that you are unloved and unworthy of love, you can tell him in the name of Jesus to shut his mouth because God loves us unconditionally. This authority has been replaced with the proper authority of Jesus. You can listen to that message last week on our webpage or you can subscribe to our podcast and really go deeper in depth about what this authority being transferred from Satan to Jesus means. But we must understand it if we're going to understand why we go and make disciples. It is the therefore, it is the context by which this command is drawn out of. Because this is the case, because authority has been given and reclaimed and because God is the king, now what? Therefore what? What are we supposed to do now? Well, we were supposed to go and make disciples. So when I was a kid, my family used to camp in the Wisconsin Dells. Anybody ever been to the Wisconsin Dells? It's it's kind of a hokey town. It's a tourist trap. Super huge concrete structures all over the place. One of those concrete structures was an upside-down house. This is well before the the Polish man decided to build his Polish upside-down house. 
Wisconsin Dells used to be famous for this distraction, but now they're all over the world. Poland, for instance. Now uh, every hokey city and every tourist trap has an upside-down house. There's nothing special or unique about the upside-down house anymore. But I remember as a child walking into this, like that girl who was in the video walking into an upside-down house, I remember... Uh, that the premise was simple, right? The house was upside down, the furniture was on the ceiling, and we were walking on the ceiling as opposed to the floor. Now, you wouldn't think this was any big deal. But what's interesting is that vertigo actually did set in only a couple minutes after being in the upside-down house. Living in this upside-down environment did bring about vertigo. It was such an odd, odd feeling. And so what was really gross about this situation is that there was like these kids who couldn't handle the vertigo, and they'd be puking in the corners and and it was, a, it, was, it was really disturbing. People would get so sick in these environments, so dizzy and so disoriented that they could not contain the food that was in their stomachs. And so there would be these people uh, who, would, who would rush in and, and help the, the kids out and help the people out who were getting sick. And they would usher them outside so that they could get back into the fresh air and the, the world that was right side up. And they wouldn't have to experience this upside down environment anymore. Being in an upside-down environment made us literally sick. It was an odd sensation. Everybody, anybody ever been in an upside-down house before? It's an odd sensation. It really is. It makes you sick. So here's the thing. Under the authority of sin and selfishness and the Satan, the world is upside-down and the world is sick. This is an analogy for the system of the world, and that's what the Polish man is trying to say, right? The world is disoriented. The world is upside-down. The world is a mess. Under the authority of the Satan, the world is a mess. It's upside down. But it's all we've ever known, and therefore we deal. We just, we just go about life, right? Worry and fear and greed and lust and gluttony and pride and selfishness. This is just the way that the world is. And, and yeah, we know what's not right. And yeah, we think that it ought to be different. And yeah, we know deep in our guts that, that we don't like it. But it's all we've ever known, and therefore we deal. And we go along with life, and we just deal. It's just what we do. And so when I was a kid walking through this upside-down house, we'd stumble through it for, you know, 20 minutes, and then we'd get back outside to where there was fresh air, and, and the world was right side up, and, and all of a sudden the vertigo would go away, and we'd start to feel normal again. Getting outside this upside-down environment, getting back into the world that was up, right side up, made the nausea and the vertigo go, go away. And so the world is like an upside-down house. You guys get the analogy, right? The world is like an upside-down house. It is making us sick. We are sick. We are nauseated. But Jesus has invited us outside. He's invited us outside of the sickness and the corruption and the chaos. But, and this is a very important but, and I think this but is something that the Christian faith has been uh, lacking and having misunderstood for the last 150 years at least, This but is when we have escaped the sickness and the corruption, when we have left the outside, when we have left the upside-down house and gone outside, he has not just called us to go lie down in the grass and to bask in the glory of the sunshine. He has called us now to go and to work and with all of our might to flip the house right side up. He doesn't want the house to be upside down anymore. He has called us out of the house so that we can flip the world right side up and flip it back over the way it's intended to be. And so when you exit the craziness and the sickness of the upside down world through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are put to work. You guys get that? We're we're put to work. He has not invited us outside so that we could just bask in the glory. Or in other words, there is no distinction between a Christian and a missionary. 
There's no distinction. We're all called to be on mission. We're all called to work for the sake of Christ. And so, I'm sorry, but you cannot be a Christian and not a mission. You cannot be a Christian and option out of what God is doing in our world. Resurrection people bring resurrection to dead people. That's just what we do. That's part of being a Christian. It's what we're about. We are on mission. You can't option out of it. There is no escape from being on mission. We are on mission if we are committed to Jesus. They are one and the same. And so when Paul was concluding all the various implications, both practically and theologically, on Jesus having risen from the dead, he says this, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. In other words, don't be swayed by the devil's lies anymore, right? He has no authority over you. Stand firm. You know who you are. You know who you serve. Don't let the authority and his hollow temptations of the devil continue to sway you. Rather, because Jesus has risen from the dead and secured your life, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Or in other words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so when I first became a Christian in high school, I I read this text and I thought, well, you know, making disciples of all the nations means that you go overseas on missionary trips. Or or that you commit your life to being a a, a full-time missionary. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. And, And because I'm not called to be a missionary, then this verse really doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm not called to commit my life to going overseas, so this verse doesn't really apply to me. Or at the very least, it's just suggesting that I go on a short-term missions project, which was all well and good, and I accomplished that several times throughout my college days. But this is where Christianity has failed us, I think. We think that mission work is for missionaries, and so most of us come to church at least every now and then, and, and we read our Bibles every now and then, and we pray every now and then, and we call it Christianity, and we say it's all good. But please understand this, that the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was not written from North America. This verse was probably spoken in Aramaic, and it was written in Greek from somewhere in the Middle East. And so you can't apply our our 21st century modern American mentalities to this verse and call it good. You need to get into the text and understand what it was saying. For instance, the Greek word for go here in Matthew 28, 19 is a present participle. That's very important. If you uh, go back to your 7th grade English classes, you might understand what a present participle is. I've, read in an, I've never read in an English version that actually translates this text as a present participle. That's a little disturbing to me because I think it skews the understanding of what the original Greek is trying to say. Everyone who wonders what a present participle is, by the way, a present participle is a verb that connotes continued action. It is always recognized by the ending ing. So if you find an ing word, you know that you're talking about a participle. This verse, in other words, isn't talking about professional missionaries or going on short-term missions project. The verse literally reads, Therefore, as you are going, as you are going, as you are going, as you live your life, as you walk by your neighbor's house, as you walk through the grocery store, as you are going... Everybody who acknowledges and reclaim the authority of Jesus Christ, everybody who is a Christian is called to always be going. We are on mission. That is our purpose. We are to be going always. And as we are going, we are called to make disciples of all nations. And so the history of the church is, is fascinating, I, I think, personally. Uh, it's, it's disturbing as well. But the history of the church and its mission over the past 150 years in particular 
I'm not going to go into depth into this, by the way. This is going to be a very skim uh, version of the last 150 years. And everything that I'm about to say is not universal. It did not apply to every single era of the church over the last 150 years, but it's kind of a blanket statement that could be shed over the church and over many Christians. These are trends in Christian thought and practice for the good and for the bad. And I say this because I, I think it will help us understand exactly why we look at a text like this and we're like, man, you know, it doesn't apply to me. It applies to the, the long-term missionaries or the short-term missionaries, but I don't need to be going on my day-to-day basis. We look at a text like this and says it applies to everybody else, but it doesn't need to apply to me. And so around the, 20th, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, 120 years ago or so, 130, 140, somewhere in there, with the rise of the industrial travel, like commercial airplanes and, and boats and cars, and the ability to go into the world on a much grander scale and easier travel than it had ever been in the past, it allowed for Christians from America and other parts of the world to get to the ends of the world and to begin doing real missionary work. It became convenient, more convenient, to do missionary work. And so before, going overseas was exceptionally hard, right? You had to take a boat that would take months to get across the ocean, and that was how you would get to the place that you wanted to go and to, to preach the gospel. Uh, for, for most people, missionary work was confined to their neighborhood. Uh, the, the, the people that I wanted to bring the gospel to and the good news of Jesus Christ to were my neighbors and my coworkers and the people I met at the, at the local store, people I crossed on the street. These are the people that I could reach, and therefore these are the people that I was witnessing to and ministering to. But there was an unintentional yet dramatic change in the missional mindset with this and new abilities to reach the world through these convenient forms of travel. Now, I'm not saying this is universal by any means, but there was a trend that began to consider the nations as people outside of our own borders. Those were the nations. Those are the people that God was calling us to. Those were the nations. And everyone, which uh, is what Jesus meant... Uh, including the people with our own nations, we jumped over the people in our own nations to get to the kids in Peru. We jumped over our neighbors to get to the people in, in Bolivia. We jumped over our neighbors to get to the people on the other side of the world because that is what the nations were. That is the mindset that had shifted. But Jesus was saying, make the whole world and all of its people, including your neighbor and your coworker and your brother and your sister, into disciples. When he says the nations, he means, man, Levittown, Pennsylvania. These are the nations. We're represented here. These are the nations. Your neighbor is part of the nations. Your mother is part of the nations. Your sister is part of the nations. We are the nations. Jesus isn't saying, hey, get to Peru because that's where the nations are. He's saying everybody making the disciples. Everybody is included in this envelope. Everybody go and make disciples of everybody. Now, it kind of sounds like he's saying that we could just force people into becoming disciples. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, hey, you better become a disciple of Jesus. Come on, man, you better become a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you follow Jesus. And in some ways, with the rise of the modern mentality early in the 20th century, this is exactly what people were trying to do. It's interesting that the, the two primary motivators for becoming a Christian were fear and guilt. These are what evangelists were preaching over the nations, the people, fear and guilt. The church dangled the fear of hell over non-believers' heads, therefore ushering the afraid into religious service and commitment. And then they turned on the guilt, leaning heavily on church attendance and proper tithing amount and looking the part of the Christian by doing all the right things and uh, praying and reading your Bible and going to church faithfully and then abstaining from all of the bad things like smoking and drinking and dancing. And yes, dancing was on that list. 
So we're going we're gonna to fear you into becoming a Christian by dangling hellfire over you, and then we're going to guilt you by, by your religious attendance. That was how people converted Christians. That is how people called the nations into the fold of Christianity. To be a Christian and therefore a disciple of Jesus meant that you looked the part and participated in the religion of Christianity. And so what happens when this modern movement um, ushers in the postmodern era? A, a new mentality of young people who grew up in the church but feel it as a hollow religion and disingenuous activity. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to leave in waves. They're going to abandon that old religion of their parents, and they're going to leave in waves to go follow some other spirituality or, or some other thing that's going to give them life. And we, have, and we saw this happening time and time and time again in the 90s and up through even today that, that you turn 18 years old and you're like, I'm abandoning the church. I'm ditching the church because all was a hollow religion. That's all I was taught. Of course, that's not universal. Of course, there are many people who have experienced the true life of Jesus and they stuck around. But so many people have been indoctrinated into this religion that when they turn 18 they're like i don't want any part of that anymore i'm gonna go find my own way i'm gonna go figure out something else it's not that they don't want life or that they don't believe in something spiritual but the religion and the the show of the ritual was hollow for them and so they go looking for life elsewhere and so here's the thing jesus did not call us to make converts he did not call us to make converts he did not make us to even make good men and women he called us to make disciples. He called us to make disciples. He did not call us to a religion or to a program, but he called us to a ritual. He called us into a relationship committed to following him and learning to be like him. That is what Jesus was calling his disciples into. We are to make disciples, not converts. Here's the thing. A disciple is a learner. That's really all Jesus has asked. He said, follow me. Watch the way I live my life, and you now learn to live your life like me. It is someone who is committed to modeling their life after another person and learning to be like them. And so Jesus being the model, right? He is the model for the, what a right-related human looks like, a right-functioning human being looks like. He is who we are to learn from, and he, he is who we are to model our lives after. And so, my friends, this might seem really intimidating to you. I get that, that you are called to go to your neighbors, you're supposed to make disciples, and you're supposed to teach them about Jesus. Man, I, oh man, there's, you know, there's two conversations that I really don't want to have with people. Politics, religion. I don't like talking about Jesus, it kind of just makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like talking about religion, it just kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. But I want you to remember just a few things. The reason that we are called to go, the reason that Jesus says go, is because all authority on heaven and earth has already been given to him. That is the reason for which we go. That is why we are compelled to go. The world is under new management. That's really what he's saying. The world is under new management. The rightful king has returned, and the old, that unjust, ruthless, tyrannical king that we've all felt the weight of, that we've all felt the, the oppression of and the tyranny of, the worry and the anxiety and the fear and the manipulation that we all feel from time to time, we've all felt it, we all know it. That has been locked up. And so now we are the heralds who go into the villages declaring that there is a new king sitting on the throne. That old king who is filling your heads with worry and filling your heads with lies and filling your heads with anxiety and fear, self-doubt and and lack of self-worth, that king has been locked up. And there is a new king on the throne who loves you and cares for you. Our disposition before the world is not of fear and it's not of guilt. We are not shoving Bibles down people's throats. We're not beating them over the head with the scriptures. That is not what we are about. 
We are not trying to intimidate the world with hellfire. That's not what we're about. The question that must motivate our going is this. How have I experienced the change in authority? And I can't answer that question for you. I don't know the ins and outs of your relationship with Jesus, but how have I experienced this change in authority? And how has my life then been changed upon giving my life in service to the rightful king? Am, am I now hopeful? Do I know I have a new perspective on contentment? Am I more grateful? Do I wake up every morning full of joy rather than full of sorrow? Do I look at a situation and I find the good rather than the pessimism in it? Was I once so impatient that I would get so angry with the people around me, but now I have a stillness within me? Was I, so, was I once so rude and unkind to the, the people that I claimed I loved, but now I, I have a kindness and a love that is otherworldly for them? I don't know the ins and outs of your personal experiences, but how have you experienced the change in authority? How has your life been transformed? How has your life been changed? And I don't mean this to offend anyone, but no one here is living so unique a life that your neighbors can't relate to you. None of our lives are so unique that my neighbor can't find something to relate with me. A situation or an experience that your coworker, or the struggles and the, the sufferings that somebody that you're close to can't relate to. Nobody is living that unique of a life that I'm, I'm sitting up on my, on my ivory tower and I'm like, I'm so far above you guys. I am living this life as well. I know what fear feels like. I know what worry feels like. I know what anxiety feels like. We all do. Right? Your friend's child gets bullied at school. Your friend's child's getting bullied at school. You know what? Every single parent worries about how their kid's day is going. Every single parent worries about what their kid is experiencing in school. Man, that just tied me to the worry of my neighbor and my friend. I have something to share with them. Right, your friend loses a loved one. Well, everyone has experienced death in some way, shape, or form. I have an experience now that just tied me to my neighbor, to my coworker, to my family member. Your brother gets fired from his job. Financial struggle and worry are basically universal experiences in our region, are they not? I have something, I have a unique experience that just tied me to my coworker or to my friend or to my brother. We all have experiences, universal human experiences that are tying us together. And everybody feels the weight of that old authority and he hears his lies, and yet he is not in control anymore. And I acknowledge that, and I know that in my own life. So for you to go on mission doesn't mean that you're about to shove the Bible down someone's throat. It doesn't mean you're going to knock them over the head with the scriptures. But rather, it's sharing with them the hope that you have received. It's sharing with them the life that you have experienced and the, and the newfound authority of the rightful king that you now claim. That is what going on mission looks like. And so two friends of mine, I used to mentor them when they were in college. They had a huge a heart for South Africa. They had read about apartheid and they had, a, uh, they had learned about apartheid and their hearts just broke over what had happened in the 90s to South Africa. And it, they made it their dream. Uh, they eventually got married. I actually married them just a, uh, two summers ago. Um, they, they made it their dream to one day get to South Africa to, to bring the restoration and the, and the love of Christ into those broken experiences. And so these two were actually called overseas 
to live their life and to share um, what they had experienced through Jesus Christ. And this past week, he wrote on his blog a simple story about what their ministry looks like. And I just want to read this for you guys. He says this, I, I realize I haven't shared many stories on this blog about the guys I work with. Criminals, prisoners, gangsters, offenders, clients. The pressure to tie a pretty bow on a broken human story makes it difficult to share. But their stories are important. In an attempt to start somewhere, I'll speak about the guys I've worked with this last two weeks. And I'll start with the pretty bow, as that's the easiest. So in 1996, a group of men committed a series of brutal, racially motivated murders that shocked the conscience of South Africa. One of those men was transported from a separate prison every day last week to attend our restorative justice course. Wednesday morning, he was transported again for follow-up, and he asked to speak to the group when he arrived. For the last 20 years, wherever I go, they, claim, they chain me up, hands and feet, even to the toilet. I must be escorted by three officers whenever I am moved. But this morning, the officer said he's seen a change in me. For the first time, beginning to choke up, the officer brought me to the truck without shackles. We rode like that, just him and me, in his truck to this prison. He wasn't scared or nervous. I've never been trusted like that. Well, can you be trusted? That is a big question in the course. We can tell people to be trustworthy till we're blue in the face, but sometimes we must trust them. We must give them the chance to be trustworthy before we're sure it's 100% safe, because it'll never be 100% safe to trust others. I spent last week with David, Andreas, and Pieter. They know they are not Christians. It's not my role in the restorative justice process to get them in a relationship with Christ. But when dealing with such deep brokenness and evil, it's hard to believe anything short of God's power can help them. Andreas and Pieter are both number, age, uh, number gangsters. And both are on the verge of departing from the gang and submitting to God's will. These two don't always go together, gang departure and conversion, but often they do. Andrea said, I know I can't say I'm a changed person. I'm going to live a better life while I'm still in the gang. But I do want to change, and I do want a different life. They face immense challenges when leaving the gang. Blood in, blood out, the saying goes. But the reason we push on the gang issue so heavily is because if they can say no to the gang behind bars, they can say no to the gangs and criminality on the outside. We also push hard on the issue because what kind of repentance is it what kind of salvation is it if we lead people to Christ, yet they are still engaged in evil operations? It's a temptation in prison ministry to go and just save souls. If you want to put big numbers on a ministry brochure, go to the prisoners with ugly, dark pasts and say, Who wants forgiveness? Come and get it. The harder challenge is to walk a road with them away from their evil ways that have caused so much pain to those around them. Andreas knows God is real, but he also knows what God requires. Now he is in a posi position to make a real decision. Pieter's family came Saturday to Family Reconciliation Day. His father and two passionate sisters preached a fiery message of repentance and salvation at him, right? The fear and the, fear and the guilt, as I was talking about. Pieter and I were hoping they wouldn't do that. In a private session later in the day, however, he softened a little to his sister's words. I'm so stuck. I'm not going to be a Christian yet. I asked him if he wanted to take the opportunity to confess the depths of the crimes to his family to see if they still thought he could become a Christian. He took the opportunity and confessed to them that he had murdered multiple people, ordering hits on many people, and had been a major drug dealer in their community. His sister's response was perfect. 
I'm shocked. I, I really am, but nothing changes. I love you the same. You can leave all of that behind. Sometimes we must hear and accept a truth from a human before we can hear and accept it from God. I think he began believing a little bit in that moment, although he said, I'm, I'm going to need time. I met with Pieter on Wednesday, and he's so close to giving his life to God and turning his back on the gang. Near the end of our time, unprompted, he said, hey, may I take this Bible until next week? Of course you can. Excellent idea, I said. A few minutes later, he handed it back to me and said, next week, next week I'll take it. Okay, I said, that's just fine. Faith is a path that is walked, and he must know I am not pushing him anywhere. That's it for now, just a snapshot. If this post leaves you asking, wait, where's the resolution? Perfect. It can be hard sometimes to believe change is possible. For each of these men, there is another guy convinced he's innocent of his rape charge, a a guy who thinks the boy he molested enjoyed it, and a guy who thinks crime isn't a choice but a coincidence. It's not always beautiful, but when it is, oh man, is it good. See, my friend is not interested in shoving Bibles down people's throats. He walked into people's brokenness, and he shared love, and he shared redemption, and he shared restoration. He's helping broken people see the opportunity for recreation, and tired people the opportunity for rest, and dead people the opportunity for new life. Don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be a part of of seeing life come to your communities and life come to your households? I know I do. I know I need a greater boldness in bringing it to my communities. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on this for just a moment. I want to offer you a new paradigm for being on mission that Jesus offers us. For those of you who were with us during the series of Seven Churches of Revelation, I talked about this concept just a little bit when we were in the, the Church of Philadelphia. If you want a greater understanding of this idea, then you can go back and listen to that message, uh, the Church at Philadelphia. So in Luke 10, Jesus sends 72 of his followers out on mission, saying that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, we usually get this backwards. We, we usually think, man, you know, the people in my community, they don't want to hear about Jesus. Uh, they, they don't want me to preach at them. They don't want me to, to tell them about Jesus. And so we're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do it. But what Jesus is saying is that the harvest is plentiful. There, there, there's a whole world out there waiting for restoration. There's a whole world out there waiting for redemption. There's a whole world out there waiting to be met with grace and kindness and love who are tired and they want rest, who are dead and want to come alive. There's a whole world waiting out there. Go! Go! The harvest is plentiful. And so he continues by describing this new paradigm for missions. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If it is not, it will return to you. And so this word peace in biblical language, in the Greek it's Irene, in the Hebrew it's shalom. It's a word that many of us are familiar with. It doesn't mean the absence of conflict entirely, though that is included in this. It means wholeness and reconciliation and restoration. Peace is the word they describe, they used to describe something that had been made new, that had been recreated, that had been reborn. That is peace. To speak peace into a household meant that you discussed the brokenness of the world and then someone responded in agreement. And you, you talked about the horrors of the news, or you talked about how, how horrible death is, or you ha- talked about how horrible disease is, or you talked about your kid's friend who's getting bullied at school, and you're like, man, I'm so sorry, that, that's horrible. I, I hate that the world is so broken. I hate that I feel this way. I hate the way that I feel internally, and that the way that my mind is twisted about these things. That's horrible. I'm going to speak peace into your life. I'm going to say, you know what? I have a solution for that. I've met the solution. 
I, I know where peace can be found. I know where happiness and, and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. I know where all of these can be found. I know where their source is. I'm going to speak peace into your situation. He continues by saying that when you are welcome, then you will have an effective ministry. You'll have an effective ministry when, when you speak peace and they're like, man, I do want that in my life. I do want that in my household. But if you are not welcomed, he says, shake the dust from your feet and move on. The point is that we are to be on the lookout for what many would call a person of peace. A person of peace is one who is prepared to hear the message of the kingdom of the king. The reality is it's no good trying to shove the Bible down people's throats. Man, you cannot walk through doors that are closed. It's just impossible to do. We must not be distracted so that we miss the doors that are actually open. And so our job is to walk through life with open eyes and open ears, speaking peace into situations. And when there is a proper response, when there is a, a response of humility, then we will have an effective ministry if we speak God's authority into it. We should concentrate on these people who are receptive people of peace and not force dialogue or relationships where they do not naturally flow. Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. I know that's really hard to do. It's hard for me to do. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard to do. Don't beat people over the head with the Bible. Don't shove it down their throats. Don't throw your pearls, your, your precious gospel before swine, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. There are people who could care less about your life. There are people who could care less about the authority of God. There are people who could care less about what you have experienced and the res- restoration you have met and the, and the new life that you are found. They're just people who don't care. And so let them be. I know that's hard to do. It is for me anyway. Just let them be. Sure, keep praying for them, but do not keep shoving the Bible down their throat. They don't care. Move on to somebody who does. And so know who you are, and more importantly, know who your God is and what he has done. You are giving a message of hope. You're giving a message of love. You're giving a message of freedom. You are not giving a message of fear. You're not giving a message of guilt. You're not giving a message of enslavement or of religion. You're giving a message of life. And so we are called to make disciples. That's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples. People who would adhere to the authority of Christ and follow him and learn to be like him. That is our calling as Christians. You cannot divorce that from our calling as Christians. You know, maybe one of the ways that God is, uh, is calling you to, to start this process is simply by inviting someone to a place like Restoration Church. I- inviting them to, to a ministry here where they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or, or not even maybe a Sunday morning service. Maybe you know your neighbor's not at that point where, where she or he would be like, man, I'm not going to go to church. I had too many bad experiences with church. So maybe you need to, to acclimate them a little bit. So maybe you need to invite them first to something like our Easter extravaganza coming up. Where, where they're going to enter into community, they're going to see generosity and love at work. And they're going to see something in maybe this community. They're going to be like, man, I, maybe there is something about these people that I like. I've always had this bad impression about what these people were like, but maybe they're not so bad after all. Maybe they'll see generosity. Maybe they'll see love. Or maybe you need to invite them to, to a, a more friendlier service like our Easter service, right? Everybody around Easter time is like, where am I going to go to church? Well, invite them here. Invite them to a place like this where they're going to hear the gospel and then follow up with them. Just say, hey, what'd you guys think? What'd you guys think about that, that Easter event? Or what'd you guys think about the Easter service? What's on your mind? You are not shoving the Bible down people's throats. You are not 
guilting people into following Jesus. You're not even making converts. You are making disciples, people who so desperately want life and people who so desperately want to be free from the burden that they are experiencing. And you say, I have a solution for you. I know where the solution can be found. I have experienced it. Here is my story. Here's how I've been transformed. That is what you are called to do. Amen? Amen.